Well, good morning. It's such a joy for my wife Meg and me to be, to be back with you all. We have been looking forward to this weekend. We love Christ Church Vienna, and I'm so thankful for you all. And especially I want to say how thankful I am uh, for the ministry of your pastor, Johnny. Um, Johnny, I, I praise God for your pastor's heart, um, your passion for the gospel, and your infectious joy in sharing it. Uh, you're humble and wise and godly. Yeah, but, amen. I'm not done, but you can clap. <laughs> um, you have such a heart for this community uh, and for people who do not yet know our Savior Jesus. I'm just so blessed by your, your gracious, thoughtful, humble leadership in caring for the flock of Christ. Uh, you and Sarah are a great team, and you're doing a wonderful job. God bless you, Johnny. Thank you so much. And my great thanks to Corky, uh, who not only serves you all, but um, along with Rob Thompson, serves on the standing committee of our diocese, which is like the church council for our whole diocese. Uh, Corky serves on the nominating committee that is working to bring forth the candidates for election as our next bishop. Um, Rob is the transition manager for that whole process, assisted by Dan Caprio. Uh, trying to keep all of the moving pieces uh, working together uh, through this important time of transition for, for our church. So my great thanks to, to you. Um, thanks also to the church council. I'm looking forward to our time together this afternoon. Thank you for your prayerful leadership of this wonderful fellowship. Well, let's pray as we turn to, to the scriptures. So gracious Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us. Use and overrule my words and all our thoughts so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, today we read about the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi in the year 49 AD. It's during what is called Paul's second missionary journey. Paul's ministry to proclaim the gospel and establish the church there in Philippi is a very significant and very strategic event because it marked the very first time that the gospel crossed over into the continent of Europe. And I want to look back a few verses uh, before our reading this morning uh, to how Paul got there and then look at what happened after he arrived. Uh, Earlier in Acts chapter 16, we read, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. How strange. God kept Paul from preaching. We don't know how the Holy Spirit did that, uh, what we knew know is Paul was trying to go first here and then there, and clearly God said no. We don't know if that was circumstantial or some inner sense of the Lord's guidance, but we do know that Paul got it wrong twice. Personally, I find that very encouraging. <laughs> but Paul wanted to go where God didn't want him 
to go. Then the passage goes on. It says, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love that word, concluding. Uh, seeking the Lord and getting God's guidance doesn't mean we stop thinking. They concluded from these signs, from the dream, from their experience of having closed doors, they concluded that God wanted them to go to Macedonia. This was his will and plan for them. And so Paul says yes to this call to go to Macedonia, and the gospel comes to Europe. Paul goes first to Philippi. The man in the vision called him to come to the region of Macedonia, but didn't specify that Paul was to come to any particular city. Philippi was the leading city, and so it seemed like a strategic place to begin. On the first Sabbath day there, they went to the riverside to pray. That means there was no Jewish synagogue in the city. To have a synagogue required 10 Jewish men, which apparently they lacked. So the Jews would tend to gather by a river, a typical place of prayer because of the availability of water for ceremonial washings. And as Paul preached, he won his first convert there, a woman named Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira, a city in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, known for its expensive purple dyes. And Lydia, we are told, was a seller of purple goods. So we can, we can conclude that Lydia was likely a successful businesswoman of some means. And she also had a large enough home that she could invite Paul and all of his team to come and stay at her house. So we would conclude her to be, in our terms, upper middle class. She's a Jew from the province of Asia. She's a worshiper, a seeker after God, who is converted by hearing the word of God proclaimed. Then we pick up the story with this morning's reading, and we hear that Paul and his companions next encounter a young slave girl. She was demon-possessed. She had literally a python spirit by which she predicted the future. She followed Paul and kept saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That was true, but Paul discerned that the words were inspired by demons. Fortune-telling is forbidden for Christians, along with astrology and palm reading and all those spiritual practices which are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so finally, Paul, annoyed by this pestering, uh, turns and says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the evil spirit left her. A second convert. But now consider who she was. She was a poor slave a young girl. She was on the lowest possible rung of the social ladder. She was a Gentile from the local area of Macedonia. She was in bondage to demons and not at all attracted to the things of God. And she was converted by the supernatural power of God breaking through in her life. With her slaves, their, their slaves' fortune-telling power gone, her owners are outraged. 
They drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the authorities. Paul and the others are beaten and flogged without a hearing. Paul later wrote in his first, Thess letter, first letter to the Thessalonians about how he was shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul and his companion Silas are thrown into jail and put in stocks, not only for security, but for torture. But Paul and Silas are praying, and they're singing hymns. How strange in a Roman jail. And what a witness to the other prisoners, and what a witness to the jailer. And what a challenge to us. How do I respond when there's a crisis? When things are bad at work, or money is tight, or illness hits? Is my reaction to adversity such a witness to those around me? a witness that shows what a difference it makes to have Jesus in my life. Well, then at midnight, an earthquake hits. The prison doors fly open, their chains come loose. The jailer wakes up, seeing the doors open, he assumes that his prisoners have escaped. Now, when Roman prisoners escaped, the guards were liable for the punishment that the prisoners would have received. The jailer figures he'll be executed. And so he decides he's better off taking his own life than being tortured and crucified by his colleagues. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer must have wondered, what kind of people are these guys? They sing when they're tortured, they don't escape when they can, they seem to be more concerned about me than about themselves. What makes them do things like this? I want what they've got. And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? He probably meant that in both senses of the word. Saved from execution by the Roman authorities and saved eternally. And then Paul and Silas explained the gospel to him. The jailer washed their wounds and then he was washed of his sins in baptism. He and his whole family because his family lived there in the jail with him. And he was filled with joy because he and his whole family had come to believe. And that's the third convert, the third member of this new church plant in Philippi. As a jailer, he was either himself a prisoner put in charge of the jail, or more likely a former soldier given this responsibility. He was a law enforcement officer, in which case he would be, in our term, terminology, middle class. He would likely be a Roman. There's no evidence that he had any interest at all in spiritual things. And he was converted by what he saw in the lives of Paul and Silas. So now look at this little church family. Lydia, the businesswoman, the former slave girl, and the jailer and his family. They are the founding members of the church in Philippi. You could hardly find a more radically different group. Economically, Lydia is wealthy, a small business owner, if you will. The ex-slave is destitute, living on the streets. The jailer, probably middle class. They were ethnically different. Lydia from Asia, the slave girl is Greek, the jailer is likely a Roman. They were different religiously. Lydia is a Jew, a seeker after God. The slave girl was in bondage to demons. 
The jailer is a worldly guy with no particular thought for spiritual things. And they were different in how they met the Lord. The businesswoman in worship by hearing a sermon, the slave girl by experiencing the supernatural power of God, and the jailer by experiencing the transformed lives of Paul and Silas. In the Talmud, which the ancient compilation of the teaching of the Jewish rabbis, in the Talmud, a Jewish man was to pray, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. A Gentile, a woman, or a slave. It is no coincidence that that is exactly who God used to start the church in Philippi. And what could unite these three, the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer? Only Jesus Christ. And what a glorious fellowship of love they made. People might discriminate, but Jesus never does. When Paul wrote to that church some years later, what we know is his letter to the Philippians, he wrote these tender words. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. What a sweet fellowship brought together in Jesus. Now with this diverse church of Philippi, Philippi in our minds, I want to look at two additional passages of Scripture that might at first glance seem completely unconnected. The first is Romans chapter 14. In this passage, Paul talks about whether or not to observe the Jewish dietary laws, about keeping kosher, if you will, about whether or not one should abstain from certain foods. Some Christians in Rome that Paul was writing to, presumably Jewish Christians, were troubled by those who were violating Jewish dietary laws. Even though Jesus had declared all foods to be clean, these Jews and their, had a long adherence to Old Testament laws about clean and unclean foods. And that made it troubling for them to eat pork, for example. Paul describes these believers as weak in their faith. Their Jewish past caused them to have scruples about something they didn't need to be worried about. Other Christians in Rome, most likely Gentile Christians, had never kept kosher, and so they had no issues about not following Jewish dietary laws. They felt free to eat anything. And Paul describes them as strong believers, strong in their faith. Paul says that we must never put a stumbling block in the way of a fellow Christian. And so it's the strong Christian, the one who isn't bothered by the food, who should change his behavior so as not to influence the weak Christian to do something that would cause him to stumble into sin by what he eats. But we need to read that passage alongside another passage, one found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, about whether or not to eat food that was offered to idols, to pagan idols, before being sold in the marketplace. And this is another controversy about food, but in some ways it's the reverse of the one found in Romans chapter 14. 
1 Corinthians chapter 8 makes clear that some, some Christians in Corinth were troubled over eating meat associated with paganism. Pagan priests would offer a prayer or blessing over an animal before it was slaughtered or perhaps before it was offered for sale in the market. And so some believers were troubled by this. And these Christians were probably converts from paganism rather than Jews. Their own history of worshiping idols before their conversion made it problematic for them to eat food associated with pagan idols. Now, Paul goes on to say uh, two chapters later that that's a legitimate concern. He says pagans sacrifice to demons and not to God, and that the Corinthians should not be participants with demons. But here what Paul is saying is that what the pagans worship is not a true God. He says the idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. And so Paul says this. He says it's okay to eat this meat, and he describes the Christians who are uncomfortable with eating it as weak, meaning weak in their faith. Their own pagan past causes them to have scruples about something they didn't need to be worried about. But the other Christians in Corinth, probably the Jewish Christians, were not troubled by eating meat that had been offered to idols before being sold in the market. Paul describes these Christians, again, as being strong in their faith. But even though Paul praises the strong ones, he again says they're the very ones who have to change their behavior in light of the consciences of the so-called weak Christians. He says, don't be a stumbling block to the weak Christian, using the same phrase he did in Romans chapter 14. By eating the meat, the strong Christian would be encouraging the weak one to do so as well in violation of his conscience. And so Paul says if eating meat would mean causing a brother or sister Christian to stumble into sin, he would avoid eating meat altogether. Now, I know that's complicated, but here's the point I want to emphasize. In Corinth, it was the Gentile Christian who was likely to be troubled by the food, since it's their pagan background that makes them more sensitive to the food's connection with idols, while the Jewish Christian's fine with it, but who needs to accommodate himself to his fellow Christians. But in Rome, it's the opposite. It's the Jewish believer who's likely to be troubled by the food, which goes against their long history of observing Jewish law. And it's the pagan Gentile convert who isn't bothered at all. So it's the pagan Gen Gentile convert who needs to accommodate to his fellow Christians. This theological controversy over dietary laws was made all the more difficult by the fact that in that culture, Jew and Gentile wouldn't even eat together. Food was the flashpoint between the two groups. There was history between Jew and Gentile overeating together, feelings of hurt and judgment and rejection and continuing hostility that made addressing these issues so very difficult. But there was more at stake at all of this than simply getting along. You see, there were gospel implications they needed to grasp. Some of you may have read Tim Keller's amazingly helpful book, The Reason for God. And in it, Keller makes the point that the gospel confronts and corrects every culture at some point. And he specifically addresses the fact that liberal Western cultures love the idea of a forgiving God 
and are repelled by the idea of a God who judges and sends some people to hell. But more traditional cultures react in exactly the opposite way. They have no problem with God's judgment, but they think the idea of turning the other cheek is ridiculous. Keller's point is no culture naturally agrees with all elements of the gospel. The gospel cuts hard against every culture at some point. And I'm indebted to Tim Keller for helping me see the connection, the link between Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Because together they demonstrate that truth, that every culture has both gospel blind spots and gospel strengths. In Rome and in Corinth, Jew and Gentile needed each other if they were to grasp the full implications of the gospel for them and for every culture and people group. Diversity in the church can be challenging for us to be sure, but it can also be God's way of showing us our blind spots and encouraging us and correcting our errors. If everyone in a church was raised the same way, taught the same way, thinks the same way, there's a real likelihood that we'll also overlook the same important elements of the gospel. Having among us folks who see the world differently can save us from a dangerous gospel tunnel vision. We are impoverished if we only read scripture through our own eyes. If we only see the Bible through the eyes of our own people group, if we only encounter scripture with those who share our life experiences. For example, we need to be taught by those who have known persecution for their Christian faith and not just security and freedom. We need the insights of those who have experienced poverty or physical suffering and not just health and success. And we need to learn from those of other cultures and races and not just our own. That's the point that Esau Macaulay makes in his book entitled Reading While Black, meaning reading, reading the Bible while black. Let me share a couple of examples from my own experience in other contexts. I was in Mozambique years ago at a time when there had been years of civil war. There was tremendous poverty and suffering and the Marxist regime had forcibly closed all of the churches. During my time there, the bishop asked me to remember the suffering in Mozambique by praying Psalm 102 for them. And I still have a reminder to do that in the margin of my Bible next to the heading of Psalm 102, which in my Bible reads, a prayer of an afflicted man when he is faint and pours out his lament to the Lord. I'm sure you can appreciate that I don't read Psalm 102 the same way anymore. Or the time Meg and I were on a study tour of Israel and our Jewish Christian guide spoke to us about Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, where the crowds in Jerusalem on Good Friday cry out to Pontius Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children. Now I knew that that verse had been horrifically misused by Christians throughout history as justification for persecution of the Jews. But our Jewish guide helped us to see much more. She said with deep passion in her voice that her people saw that verse not as a curse, but as a prophetic 
prayer for the salvation of the Jewish people, crying out for the blood of Jesus to cover and save the Jews. Again, I don't read that verse the same way anymore. We need each other. And we need those who have different lenses through which to read Scripture and understand the unwavering truth of the gospel. The church is called to the ministry of reconciliation in our painfully polarized culture. And we're called to fulfill that calling. And we need ourselves to learn and grow and build relationships across the great divides we're experiencing. In the days of the New Testament, the rifts between Jew and Gentile were every bit as great as the divisions we see in our culture. Remember, Jew and Gentile wouldn't even eat with each other. And yet Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between them, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. In his flesh, dying on the cross, Jesus healed the divisions and brought peace. The scriptures show us how Jew and Gentile overcame their divisions over sacred foods and forbidden foods. Divided people came to understand that in Jesus they needed each other. They each had a valuable perspective the other lacked because the gospel is for all people and the gospel affirms and also corrects every culture and every society. The body of Christ is called to a ministry of reconciliation in our painfully polarized culture. Even within godly, faithful, Bible-believing churches, the diversity of views can be a real challenge. Yet we are one in Jesus. He's torn down the dividing wall and he brings unity and true peace. The peace the world cannot give. We need each other so that we can learn from one another and overcome our blind spots and come to see the fullness of the gospel. This church is reaching out in beautiful ways in this community and beyond. CCV's cross-cultural Spanish ministry that Rod and Jorge lead so, so powerfully, uh, that ministry is a wonderful example of that. But let me also encourage you in your personal ministries to reach out and form friendships, to listen, to learn, to share. Crossing barriers of culture and race and ethnicity can be hard. There can be misunderstandings along the way, but it's worth it for us together to submit to the authority of the scriptures and to let God's word speak to us, guiding us and encouraging us and correcting us all that we might know the fullness of the gospel and manifest the unity that the, our world so desperately needs. Amen.